So I've sat down, recorded, and re-recorded the introduction of this season of My Colorful Nana several times. My name is Lauren Stockman-Brown, and I'm nervous. I'm nervous because My Colorful Nana is inspired by my grandmother, Joyce Brown. My Nana has taught me many life lessons. When I was six, she taught me the healing power of a paint stroke. When I was 19, a picture of her sporting a beautiful Afro sparked a new vision of living inside of myself. In her own way, she inspires me to be kind and move through life with generosity on my mind. I'm now 25 and my graduate work at Columbia University is inspired by Joyce Brown. Currently, my relationship to my grandmother is teaching me the painful and crucial realities of living a life that is cyclical, a life that aches, and a life that is colorful. Welcome to My Colorful Nana, season five, Growth and Development. I appreciate you being generous with your time and listening to these words. I hope you enjoy this season. I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all chains still binding me. My interest in theater and performance comes not only because I was writing before I was studying, mm -hmm. but also because I really believe in the, well, really believe is an overstatement. <laughs> I believe tentatively. In maybe. The maybe. Maybe possibly, because I'm from Ohio where we don't have theater, so oh. saying like, oh hey, theater has the potential to change lives all over the place. It's not theater everywhere. Yeah. So, so would you say, because I know you're about to finish a thought too, but would you yeah. say theater in itself is also a privileged Oh yeah. Like, like medium? I started doing, I went to private school in Ohio. Before mm -hmm. I did that, like before I went to high school, I literally had never seen a play. Like, mm -hmm. I had seen Christmas Carol at Northern Kentucky University. I had seen, a, I had done a Christian chorus play because I went to Catholic school. And then <laughs> I had literally never heard of any of the other plays that people throw about. Like, my friend, I was just talking to somebody who's in one of my, like, undergraduate classes with, like, English students. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I've never heard of Samuel Beckett. Who is that? I was like... Mm what like yes but that's just the way it is like yeah theater is not the medium that it used to be there everybody was seeing it and everybody was talking about it and it would sort of disseminate it's expensive mm. to go see plays yes and they're so centered on urban landscapes that like saying that theater is universally affecting ignores the fact that theater isn't even universal or accessible. so yeah yeah so when you say like okay like i'm studying theater and performance which is a very like in this context we're going to say it's somewhat it could be seen as an elitist mm -hmm. you know medium but then you're studying it with like hand in hand with something like caribbean studies right. and africana studies which is like the whole process of that work and post-colonial work is to make it accessible exactly. to make it flexible like yeah. how do you how do you make sense of that in your mind? Like you're something know. so inaccessible, it's like you're like, studying both inaccessible and something so like meant to be accessible. Like right. Why? Why in that inaccessible space? For me, it's that writing plays and studying theater and performance for me is also a way of like giving myself an opportunity to write plays with a salary. Um, <laughs> Smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 
I have the ability to try and make these things more accessible, even mm-hmm. from a theater and performance lens. I have the ability to disseminate my work in ways that are not usually disseminated. Yeah. And that's part of what I want to do with the things that I put on stage and where I, where I stage them and how much I make them cost. Yes. Is like, even though I'm in New York now and, you know, I travel to do plays in other places, but even though I'm in New York now, I want four people in New York who do not typically go see plays to be able to see these mm. and to get something out of them and to think that they're not only interesting but useful. <laughs> like, yes. To give them an alternative way of thinking about their, their selves, mm. you know? So did you ever think about when you were applying to PhD programs and you like just graduated undergrad from yeah. Columbia as well? I graduated in May and yeah. it's now February of the next year. How's that decision <laughs> going? <laughs> oh, but like when you were making that decision of PhD programs, like did it ever cross your mind of like, okay, I'm just going to do like an Africana studies. Mm. I'm just going to do an African and African American studies or I'm just going to do American studies. Like did any yeah. of that like or history? Africana crossed my mind. History, I was like, I just don't have the skill set. <laughs> Africana, because of Kim Hall across the street at um, Barnard, um, who teaches classes, especially she teaches a black Shakespeare course that's really heavily centered on historicizing Shakespeare mm. and making it clear that black people did not come into existence after Shakespeare, that there were people who would now be identified as black, that there were Africans, that there were African slaves in... Mm. England at the time that Shakespeare was writing and that that the understanding of where those bodies fit into the archive should impact our understanding of what Shakespeare was writing um, and she works a lot in Africana studies she's like the biggest black Shakespeare early modern black early modern period scholar uh, I think like in the country right now and her influence was definitely like okay you can you could study theater outside of theater but mm. she was studying theater history which I do not study. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know if I, I think theater and performance was mostly, my skills are in theater and performance studies. That's what my undergraduate degree was in. And even though I have like this ethnicity and race background as well, because of my like minor in CSER or whatever, it was like. What is CSER? Uh, the Center for Study of Ethnicity and Race, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I, I feel like I'm going to get more from starting from the theater perspective and then bringing in other things mm-hmm. than other people specifically would get from me starting from a perspective that I don't really understand as well, the history perspective, the okay. African States perspective, and bringing theater. Is it okay if I go into black hair as well? Of course. Just because as you're talking about this, like, <laughs> like this, this conundrum, let's say, that happens when people are like, like, what's your perspective on this, like, yeah. super specific way of thinking, right. and taking, like, a very super specific medium that only a few people have interest in, right. can you communicate that to a broader audience, right. right? So, for me, when that comes up, I think of, like, how I focus my studies on, or I'm trying to focus my studies on black hair, mm-hmm. um, but before we get into, like, the nitty-gritty academic side of it, I would love to hear more of just, like, your relationship to your hair. Yeah. My relationship to my hair is so... Could you rock like dreads? Yeah, I have. I've had locks for five years, and Mm -hmm. so I haven't cut my hair in six or seven years. But I started growing my hair out because I came to school here and like didn't know anywhere to get my hair done. 
Like I just in couldn't New York find City kid? Right, well, right next I, to like, Harlem. Kid? I don't. Li- I didn't live here. Like I was from. I'm from Ohio, and I was like, well, I don't. I don't know where to get my haircut. I don't know if I want to get my haircut. And it just got to like the point where my hair was just so high and so unruly that I went home for Christmas break my first year here. My mom was like, do you just want to twist it? Mm. And so we did. And it was supposed to be temporary. It was supposed to be like, twist it because your hair is long enough to twist it. And then Mm. we'll untwist it and you'll have a twist out. And then I came back here where my mom is not. uh, (laughs) And and was like, well, I don't know how to, she didn't tell me how to untwist this. Uh, She said to keep it in for two weeks. I don't know how to get rid of it. So (laughs) I just started growing it out. Now it's like down past my shoulders. Yeah, it looks lit though. Yeah, I I really like it. And I also, I cut, because my hair is short on the sides, and I also didn't want to pay for haircuts. Uh, I just started cutting my own hair. Also, I was like, "Well, I mean, if I'm not gonna, if I'm not gonna get it done on top, I'm not gonna get it done on the sides. Like, I'm not just gonna show up at somebody's place and be like, give me a Caesar, but only like half of one. I, mean, <laughs> I could just do that at home. Yeah, no, but I love also when you like throw it up in a bun. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like the sides, it looks lit. Yeah. Um. Okay. Interesting. So you said you went to a private school, which I didn't know. Oh in yeah. Ohio. And well, I'm assuming you were one of the few. How many of us were there? <laughs> Two. Three. Two Three, and then one of them left. So <gasps> Good choice. Yeah, no, it, was, it, was, it was me, Carly, and Micah against the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> was that, like, interesting navigating not only your identity in terms of your, your skin, but the other outside of that was, it was. your hair? Like, what yeah. was that? It was, like, um, I also just, like, have issues when people touch the top of my head. Just, like, I get really sensory overloaded and people used to touch the top of my head all the time just Mm. like feel the hair and it was like somebody would just sort of approach me and hit me on the top of the head just out of nowhere and Mm. like what is that like literally what is going on yes and I got to the point where it's entertaining because they touched the top of my head and then I go whoa because I I didn't expect it yes so I was like even outside of just being like one of very few black people at that school it was like the act of touching my hair became something that people did often and like on a whim in a very strange way hmm. like did that ever inspire like so i'm looking at some of your list of plays av mm-hmm. right yeah maybe ever inspire i know av is about like again just in short but it's a play mm-hmm. it's dealing with um the effects of sexual and racial trauma on the black psyche and so much more yeah um what like did that ever like the feelings that came up, like you said, mm-hmm. sensory overload. Like yeah. That specific wording, like, does that ever come up as you're like writing plays and yeah. like thinking in that creative way? In AAVE, it definitely did, especially. That play is just sensory overload. Like, it's, it's not only, it mostly takes place like centered at a, a party in which there's sexual and racial trauma occurring, um, but it keeps cutting away to all of these like strange little moments in like dreamscapes like there's one point in which the main character is being verbally harassed by all of the statues of the Met so like Michelangelo's David is there um Lucretia from the Rape of Lucrece is there you're like I look back at that and I'm like number one what were all of those statues doing in my head at that time yeah It was an emotional play that just attacked the senses at all times. And I think that that really came out of the feeling that I was having of being really not at home in my own skin. That's so interesting. 
What a fun play. <laughs> yeah, do you want to... I have, like, questions on that, yeah. too. Like, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Like, a question that I wanted to talk about more is, like, what inspires you to write, brainstorm, yeah. imagine, create yeah. art? And then I love this... It's bittersweet, right? That use of overly... Sensory overload. Yeah. Because um, I think a lot of my art stems from that, too. Right. And specifically in relation to my hair, I channel that feeling in yeah. order to fuel myself to do everything else. Yeah. So, like, yeah, do you want to share a little bit more about Evie or, like, like the other plays that you've written about blackness and yeah. familial ties? Yeah. I, I mean, all of them came out of, like, deeply personal places. Like, AAVE was the sensory overload that I felt on arriving to Columbia specifically. Um, it was a strange political landscape on this campus in 2018 where people were really aware of that bad things were happening but nobody really wanted to say anything about it Mm. but everything after that has come out of my relationships with my family and extended family like um, my most recent one that went up was dream a little dream of me and that one was about um, my own relationship and my father's relationship to my grandmother who is sick Um, And it's just, like, overbearing in a way that, like, you understand why. Like, she's very... She's a person who wants to have your attention at all times. And because of the way that black families work, like, you don't put your mother in a home. No. 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 So it was, like, you could see, especially with my dad, you could see the toll that it was taking on him. Like, Mm -hmm. physically, mentally... It was just for the time that my grandmother, that we were, like, most involved with her, it was, like, he was a completely different person. Like, I, I, you, like, barely recognize him. And it was, that book, Dream a Little Dream, came out of what it's like to love someone who you, you love very, very much, and you realize that it's not good for you. Hmm. And, I don't know, all of those plays are... What inspires me to create mostly is how do I talk about things that are important to me in a way that is accessible, as in linguistically accessible, mm-hmm. to people outside of academia. Like, yeah. of course I could write a little paper on it. You know what I mean? I yeah. could write a little paper and the words would be the biggest words you'd ever seen. Because I know <laughs> a lot of big words. But it's not really helpful. Like, what am I going to do? Publish that in TDR? (laughs) Yeah. So just to keep it a little bit more general as well, Mm. right? Because I want to keep it... um, Yeah, just keep it more general. So in this conversation on growth and development, Mm -hmm. how do you think black hair can serve as a medium that can help us explore these concepts more Mm. strategically? Do you remember the moment a few years ago um, I think it was like 2019 or 2020 um, when people were banned from having locks in schools. Of course. And it was like a big free speech issue. Yeah, I was that, a part like, of that. Um, it's called the Crown Act. Yeah. A part of that, making that accessible. Incredible, number one. Very good. I <laughs> love having locks in school and would be very <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I feel like ever since then, you see people with a lot of different hair on the street. Like you, I've, I've noticed that a lot of people, a lot of specifically black men, are at that like mid-length lock stage now. That sort of implies that you started growing it in like 2020, 2021, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It seems like black hair and the accessibility of having it and the 
ability to have it, especially in professional spaces, mm. and to be confident that you're going to be able to express yourself in the way that hair does in spaces that are also going to allow you to progress financially and economically, mm-hmm. I think is really important. Because otherwise, you know, everybody's got, I hate to hate on the Caesar because it's a classic, but everybody's <laughs> got a Caesar haircut. Yes. And everybody's trying to look professional in this way that. Blend. Yeah, blend. Mm. And that seems counterproductive because yes. why should we? Mm. I feel like, okay, this might be a stretch, but I feel like it's weeks soon in the beginning when we were talking about like talking about something that's meant to be so accessible and flexible, like right. Caribbean studies, right. and making that, you know, communicative in like a theater space right like the same way hair is something that's expressive and flexible and trying to make that communicative in this very like more corporate space right you know and like how do you balance those two feelings and ideas like yeah especially as you continue your work in caribbean studies and theater yeah and it's difficult but it's also like you just have to keep keep pushing it I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that one day I will cut my hair, um, and I will have a Caesar like I had for most of my life. <laughs> and I think that when that day is here, I will also have to reckon with what that means for my, like my expression of myself. I don't yeah. know. Like for you, when you step into like specifically a Columbia classroom, because we're taking these theater and performance courses. Mm-hmm. They're, like, primarily white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, like, dude, I I'm have like... to tell you about um, somebody, I'm taking this class, and somebody said, I think that the we in We Wear the Mask, a poem written by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, whose mother was born into slavery in Kentucky, I think that the we is any marginalized group, including women. And I was like, Why white women? You, th- you think Paul Lawrence Dunbar was writing about white women in 1892 I was like this is the craziest class period I've ever been in I do not understand how, <laughs> like this is the highest level of academia like this is mm. the, the 7% acceptance rate like this is the school yeah. and this is what we're talking about in here yes. I was like this is like I was talking to my dad about it afterwards I called him and was like I think it's insane the world that these people live in you know what I'm like the world that these people live in is so centered on one aspect of the world in which they must be included and always are mm. and that was like I, I obviously knew that and like somewhere like I've, I've gone to this school for five years I knew that yeah but it's shocking. it was shocking to me yeah. how thoroughly you could make something about yourself like, you could just mm. take something that was written against you, like was written with you as the them, and make it the we, and that that would be unchallenged in a classroom of your peers, is insane. <laughs> that is so interesting. Yeah. Okay, so for me, when I think of black hair too, like, for me, what makes it so fascinating is that like I feel like it's impossible for a white peer to make that them right. a we. Like, they so often don't want to make it right. a we, which is, I feel like, what creates this medium, like, sparks this, like, creativity specifically in the black community to yeah. be like, this is us, and, like, it's something that you'll never understand. Right. Like, what does that, like, bring up for you that you can have that amount of fluidness yeah. and, like, advocacy in a space like that? It's really... Like, I, I love it. I think that, especially when you look at, 
you know, there's locks and then there's Florida locks. You know what I mean? My partner is from my partner's from Miami. And so you see a lot of people on the street, like with, you know, what I think new white New Yorkers would refer to as Basquiat hair. Like the hair that looks unruly, untamable, mm. and is still the way that they wear their hair and they wear it well. You mm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that the fact that something could be so presentable as unruly and untamable, so interpretable in that way, and yet the subject who is being interpreted is still like understanding themselves and presenting themselves entirely differently just through their hair mm. is so fascinating that you could be like, like you know, my locks are, I free, I free grew them, and so they're like different shapes, they're different sizes. I have a lot mm. of like Congoed locks, like locks that come down and then are mm. combined and split into two. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's definitely not what locks are supposed to look like. <laughs> it's supposed to be like mm. a little bit thicker than they are. Like they're definitely thinned out. It's supposed to be one thing that goes straight down you're supposed to get them retwisted every once in a while like my cousin has similar hair and his sister is always calling us on the phone being like when are you going to get them retwisted (laughs) (laughs) both of you have shoulder length locks that you have maybe never retwisted (laughs) but it's still like both of us are like it's just i don't like it retwisted i think it's nice you know what i mean yeah so it's like i don't know it's interesting that like, such a specific part of your body can hold that much right. weight. Yeah. Is it fair to say power? I, I think know. so. I have three more questions, if that's okay. Okay. Um, okay, the first one being, obviously you would say, or actually, let me not even say obvious. Would you say that your personal identity is interwoven into your graduate studies work? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I how think do that you it like balance that specifically within a space like Columbia? Yeah. that like you've you've spoken about doesn't always make you feel as safe. Yeah, I don't know. I think that your personal identity should be interwoven into your graduate study because otherwise, what are you doing here? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you don't care, if you don't care deeply about what you are doing, if it's not personally relevant to you, what kind of study are you gonna put out? Yeah. Like. What could, um, I'm going to read another article on a, a play from 1538. Like, <laughs> you can do that, sure. But who is that helping you? Yeah. Like, not even is it helping other people, but is it helping you? Yeah. And so for me, weaving my identity in in the way that I did was also a way of understanding myself more thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And so graduate studies is also a way of understanding myself more thoroughly. Like, this school is going to give me something, too. Yes. I'm going to do a lot of labor for it, but I'm going to get something out of it. And yes. that something is going to be a, a much more complicated understanding of who I am as a person mm. and where I fit on an identity weird little spectrum and what I can do with that for myself and others. Mm. I love that. So generous thinking is a term that I throw around a lot within, like, my work with my helpful Nana and mm. I try to say like so you're a generous thinker just in the way that you like came to my apartment in the morning and like sat down and shared all of this like intimate stuff about yourself mm. and I just really appreciate it nice. um, <laughs> so thank you one but then also to you what does generous thinking mean outside of this like podcast and more so mm. outside of academia like as we think of growth development education accessibility um, on a global scale like mm. what does generous thinking mean 
I think. Well, let me let me think for a second. Yeah, so of course, of course. I'm not, I'm not just talking, but <laughs> I think that generous thinking is the way that we relate to each other in not only productive, but I was going to say capacitative, not useful, but. not only productive, but kind ways. I do believe in kindness as a way of interpersonally interacting that makes someone's day better on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. and that that itself is a political and useful act. Okay, I love that. And Kay, last question. Um, what's next for you? So when I say next, I guess I mean two things. Next mm-hmm. as in like short-term and long-term. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm continuing graduate studies. I got a play going up in Detroit in summer that I'm excited about. My thesis play from last year, which was about um, black masculinity um, and all of the ways that rigid conceptions of gender are harmful to everybody involved, not only the people who are receiving those rigid interpretations, but also the people that they're acting those interpretations out upon. Um, so I'm excited about getting to do that. I might be making a movie. Cool. That would be weird. I might be making a movie of the same play, so that would be weird. Go. But, yeah, I'm excited to just keep doing whatever it is we do on a basis. <laughs> uh, whatever we do every day, I'm excited to keep doing it. Cool. <laughs> so. And do you think, do you want to, well, we talked about this, if you want to be a professor? or? Oh, I think so. I, I jump back and forth on it, but the more I think about it, I get so much joy out of teaching. I used to teach um, a playwriting workshop for like marginalized students at Columbia. Um, <laughs> what was it? it was called Incubipoc, which I thought was so funny. It was like a little play on incubator that nobody ever got. Um, but I got so much joy out of just watching people get to make plays that wouldn't have gotten to make plays in other. Companies. Yeah, because like you know we have one new play incubator on Columbia campus, and. I've done it several times, and I think every time I've done it, I've been maybe one of two, maybe one of one people of color who was on it, because, I mean, we talked about this when I was in a black theater ensemble, um, which I was co-president with the wonderful Madison Hatchet for several Mm. years, Um, and nobody in the black theater ensemble was a theater major. Nobody. Because people who come to Columbia, especially black people who come to Columbia, don't have the opportunity to be a theater major. Like everybody in that everybody in that field was like STEM. Like our our treasurer was in was like an evolutionary biologist. We had people who were in finance, people who were everywhere, but not in theater, because nobody's parents wants to send you to this school and have you like if you don't have a backup, if you don't have like a generous nest egg, it's just not happening for you. And so getting to do theater as, or getting to help people make theater as a teacher was in some ways more interesting and more useful to me than getting to make theater as a person. It was like, I get to do this, obviously, because I I just, I got to do it. But now you get to do it, and we get to talk about that, and it'll be interesting, and there'll be more playwrights in the world, other than one. Like, if if I do plays, there's one new black playwright in the world. If I teach, then there's however many, you know what I mean? 
Thank you for being here, Ken. Thank you for having me, Blair. That was so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> I love, like, we don't hang out enough. I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish.